And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness, settling it therefore in your minds. Do not meditate beforehand on how to answer, but I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Good morning. Let me pray and specifically lift up this morning as well as Harbor House. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We cherish it so much, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us what you want us to hear that would change our lives. We ask, God, for your blessing upon Harbor House. Thank you so much for Kathy, and we pray that you would bless her and her work as executive director there. Thank you so much for how they've served this neighborhood and all the children here. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would continue to bring people to support them in this wonderful work. Uh, We ask, God, that wherever there is deficiency, that you would fill those needs. Lord, we are blessed to have partners like this who show us what kingdom work is like and what it can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we start into verses 8 through 19, I think we have to kind of take a step back to a couple verses. Let's start out with verses 6 and 7, just to give you kind of a context before we venture into the rest of the passage As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now you notice that the disciples didn't question whether or not the temple was going to come down. They've hung out with Jesus long enough to know that whatever he says is going to happen. Because they were on that boat and he said, Be still, and it was still. So whatever Jesus said it's coming true, guys. Just just listen. Just take it. Absorb it. But what they are curious about is this sign that is going to be before these things happen. And so they want to know when. What is the sign and when is this going to happen? And so I think as Jesus is telling them these things, they're caught a little off guard by Jesus' statement because as we said last week, the temple was more than just a physical structure, this grand, majestic physical structure. The temple was also representative of their spiritual life, representative of their entire religion. This is where they went to meet God. This is where they believed that the glory of God dwelled. But the religious leaders corrupted what this temple was to mean. Let me give you an example of this. You look back to Luke chapter 19, verses 45-46, through and it reads this, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So this is what the religious leaders have done to the temple. And so even though they corrupted the temple, it didn't stop the people from believing in God because it didn't change the fact that God was real to them. 
It didn't stop the widow from giving her two small copper coins at the temple. It didn't stop the people from going to the temple during Passover. It didn't stop the disciples from looking at this temple with awe, not just because it was physically beautiful and majestic, but because they believed that God was dwelling inside there. But it had to come down. It had to come down because the whole religious structure needed to be redone. Not just the physical structure, the whole religious structure. And the change would be ushered in by the coming of a Messiah, Jesus. So why would the disciples ask Jesus about the sign to come and when the temple would come down? Because they were concerned with the end of the world. If the temple is coming down, maybe the whole world's coming down. Because if God's house is coming down, maybe our houses are coming. Maybe this is it. Matthew recorded for us the disciples' thoughts in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. He wrote, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So they thought, this is it. This is the end of the world as we know it. But I feel fine. You see how they were concerned with the close of the age? Or the end of the world? Matthew gives us a perspective of the biography of Jesus that is different from Mark, which is different from Luke. And they're not contradicting each other. They're just different perspectives. And the authors pay different particular interests in one detail while others point out different things at different times. And so in Matthew 24, verse 3, Matthew pointed out that their concern was about this close of the age. Now, interesting thing about the fall of the temple. The disciples seem to think that the end of the age corresponded with the fall of the temple. But if you read this, just as it is, without any kind of other influences, do you read that Jesus is concerned about the same thing? Because He's not. Jesus didn't lump the two together. These are two separate events in terms of the temple being destroyed and the end of the age. Those are two separate events. Now the case in point, the temple fell down 2,000 years ago. Has the world ended? So two separate events. So what the disciples are taking as a sign of the close of the age in chapter 21 is actually not that. And even if we look at recent times, if people are interpreting this is the end of the age, this, this chapter, chapter 21 when Jerusalem is surrounded, what happened in 1967? Israel, Jerusalem was surrounded. It's 40 years later. Is it the end of the age? It's two separate events, right? So the Gospel writers recorded what the disciples thought, but that's not what Jesus spoke about. Jesus was speaking about a different thing. Jesus spoke about the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, not the end of the world in chapter 21. That's my opinion. Others have differing opinions. I'm not saying I'm absolutely right. Praise me. I'm just saying I don't agree with those that have that different view, and we are all brothers. (laughs) Some view this chapter to be of eschatological significance. Eschatology, the study of the end times. And they view this chapter as being significant to the study of the end times. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. And I can see where people get this idea 
what I have a difficulty with is I can clearly read here that it definitely pertains to the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, but I'm not so sure it concerns with the end of the world. That's just my opinion. We really need to be careful how we approach biblical text because I think there are times that our backgrounds heavily influence how we interpret Scripture. Right? So many factors influence our biblical interpretation. So you take things like politics. Right? So in the U.S. there seems to be quite a divide amongst the two largest parties in our government structure. And that divide directs much of their biblical interpretation, doesn't it? So they have these pet issues, they have these pet things that they want you to vote on, and they, they try to put this in, like, hey, this is where we stand, so you vote for us, and this is where we stand, so vote for us. So what happens. Socioeconomics. Right? The poor and the rich. If they allow their sociology, if they allow their economics into their biblical interpretation, it changes the way that the Bible reads to them. Right? It's not necessarily what the Bible is really teaching because they're being influenced by those types of backgrounds that they have. And the same influences can be said of ethnicity or, or citizenship or theology or eschatology and a number of things that make us who we are. All those things influence. So cultural influences may affect our interpretation of the Bible, but what is the Bible really saying? What is it really saying? Because U.S. American citizens under a capitalistic society read parts of the Bible very differently than Chinese citizens sitting under communism. It's just the way it is. And so even with, within those different respective countries... We have neighborhoods in the inner cities and we have neighborhoods in rural areas and we read different parts of the Bible differently depending on those backgrounds. And within the differing cultures between urban and rural, there are different churches within those areas that hold to different theological views, different eschatological views, different logical views, whatever, plug it in. All those different types of things. But what is the biblical text really saying? And so at times we let theology dictate how we read the Bible when there are evidences for different viewpoints. Right? So for example, the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism. They are vast. And we don't have time to go into detail, but doesn't the Bible lay evidence down for both? Aren't they both in there? Aren't both views represented in the Bible? And one doesn't explain away the other. So they're both in there. So I wonder how much of our biblical interpretation is influenced by theological perspectives when both viewpoints can be held. And so if you're a hardliner to either side of that theological issue, you'd be upset at me right now because you'd demand that I take a stand for one. Make up your mind. You're so indecisive. How can you call yourself a Christian? You've got to make yourself... Because I've been accused of that too. But the thing is, the Bible doesn't do that. God is completely at ease presenting to us both viewpoints in His Word. Isn't He? And He's not bent out of shape over it. He's like, you guys deal with it. Talk about it and get along. Or what about eschatology, right? The study of the end times. There are many different viewpoints, right? And there's the pre-mill, all-mill, post-mill. What I really need, though, treadmill. And so 
I think most of you can relate to we, uh, treadmill. We need treadmill. We don't need these other mills. But how often does our eschatology dictate our biblical interpretation of the Scriptures? Which may not be telling us what the Bible is really telling us. Are we more interested in marching to the banner of our eschatology or marching to the banner of our theology before the Bible itself? And everything is tainted by the way we're looking at those things. So there are places where the theology or the eschatology or the whateverology viewpoint is definitely in the text. It's definitely there. But how many times do we needlessly insert it into the text when it's really not there? It's just not there. Or maybe it's in there, but it's not to the extent that we make it out to be. And it's just a much smaller issue in the text than we make it out to be. Again, I'm not saying that I have it all down. And I'm not telling you that I am not influenced by my cultural makeup or my cultural influences or my whatever. I am. I try to interpret the Bible as it is. I try. But I'm sure that my influences are still there and I'm sure that I'm still influenced by those thoughts. But what are our cultural influences that we are applying when we are studying the Bible, when we are reading the Bible? And does it minimize what the Bible is really saying to us? Does it water down what the Gospel is really saying, what the kingdom message really is? Because this is why God destroyed the temple. Their relationship with God got institutionalized. It got focused on these externals. It got focused on these things outside of what God was really standing for. So how things looked on the outside or, or how, how to make extra money with corrupt practices in the temple or wearing the right clothes or saying the right things or, or just having things that are externally focused and not internally focused because if they took a, some time to just look at their heart and their mind and where that was coming from, it was rotten. And their heart was hardened towards God. Their worship, their giving of offerings was just for show. And that's partly why Jesus pointed out that widow who gave those two small copper coins because she got it. She understood it. She wasn't externally focused. She wasn't holding some other banner other than her relationship with God, other than what was really in the Scriptures. We need to study the Bible. We need to study it, and we need to study it differently. What I mean by that is we need to learn it on different levels. See, at times, in order for me to get a more holistic glimpse of the Gospel, you have to look at it from different perspectives, right? So at times, I want to look at it from a hot air balloon. Just from a little vantage point where I take larger chunks and and I can look at an entire book, say like the book of Luke, and read it in one sitting. And do that and try it. It only takes a few hours. Just take a weekend or something. Just do it. It only takes a few hours. And the perspective is totally different because you're going to start picking up themes that are different. You're not going to start breaking things up. You're not going to break off the two mites widow story from what's before and what's before in the temple and all this stuff. You're not going to break everything in chunks because you're going to be able to see how everything fits in together. And that's going to be totally different from a different way of studying the Bible in terms of looking at it from under a microscope. And so you're going to start doing a word study. 
Right? And you start doing word studies and you're going to look at Luke 20 and you're going to say, oh, what does this age mean? And then right later on he's saying that age and what, is, what, what do those two things mean? And you go into it from a microscopic level. Or you can take a satellite view. And you read huge chunks of the Bible, uh, multiple books at a time, because that gives you a different perspective. And so you try studying it different ways because you're going to pick up different things about the Bible by doing that. But the biggest thing for us to do is just to study it. And when we study it, we need to seek God. We need to seek God as we do that. To be learners of the Bible. And yes, we have our backgrounds and we have our different influences and theological ideas and influences from books and sermons and teachers that affect how we interpret the Bible. But are we on our knees asking the Holy Spirit to lead and direct our studies? To convict us of views that aren't biblical, that aren't currently in us, and to lead us away from convictions we tightly hold on to which are preventing us from receiving what the Bible really is telling us. See, don't minimize and water down the Gospel, the Kingdom of God, the Bible, with our politics, with our denominations, with our theology, with our socioeconomics, with our culture, with our whatevers. The teacher... And the key influence to our studies is God. And we need to pray for His guidance and power to show us His way. Because who do we worship? Who do we ultimately serve? It's God. Then why let anything else be our primary influence to our relationship with God outside of God? It's the other way around. God influences our politics, our culture, our sociology, theology, eschatology. God is to influence. But how many times have we done it the other way around? And we've minimized God by having other things influence us more than that, more than our relationship with God. We let those things dictate how we see God. That makes no sense. God wants to maximize our influence in all aspects of our life. So whether in our socioeconomic places or whether in our politics or whatever, He wants to make those things bigger than what those things are. They're just small little things. They come and go. You know, there's countries that were in power before for centuries that are no longer. They just come and go. And this is what we tend to do. We tend to shrink Him down. And we tend to shrink what God has down. And we have all these other things influencing our relationship with Him. It's the same thing that happened with the temple. Those guys made God fit into their box and then started making all these things. And God was saying, it has to come down. It has to come down. Don't turn small things into big issues and turn big things into small issues. Jesus is the only way to God. Big issue. No other way to put it. And if there's a place for a Christian to be dogmatic, there it is. There's nothing else. I I can't tell you anything else. But in the Bible, men wearing tassels. Small issue. Right? You want to wear them? Fine. You don't want to wear them? Fine. Fine. Not something for us to part ways over. Not something for us to be dogmatic over. But in everything that we do, be humble, in prayer, seeking God's guidance in it. So here we are. Long intro that is still not done. I still have some more. 
But I wanted to give you that introduction because our text is sometimes so heavily influenced by our eschatological views when reading this passage of Scripture, and what we're reading into it may not be there, which may cause our interpretation to be off. Now, this chapter, Luke 21, is known as the Olivet Discourse. Okay, because Jesus was on Mount Olivet, or the Olivet Prophecy. And it may also be found in the other synoptic Gospels, in Matthew and in Mark, in Matthew 24, Mark 13. And each one of them recorded their respective biographical accounts of Jesus. Why did they do that? Because like the rest of the Bible, what we study in the Scriptures ultimately leads us to increase and to nourish our faith in God. Jesus isn't about providing some cryptic insights about the end times or cryptic insights about what things are to come. Jesus was not cryptic. Sorry for all you Da Vinci Code fans. He's not, right? He's not. Jesus laid it out. No secrets. Completely transparent. Completely vulnerable. Complete full disclosure. And He doesn't want His disciples to get caught off guard because God is about increasing. God is about encouraging, nourishing our faith. He's not about deflating it. So part of the training, part of the preparation He laid out for His disciples included informing them of the things to come. So here we are, verses 6 and 7. Let me read that for us again before we jump ahead. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, we're going to get to verse 32 in the following weeks, but let's jump ahead there for a minute because verse 32 actually answers the question for us. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So the question in verse 7, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? We're going to go through verses 8-19 through 19 this morning, I promise. But we're told when in verse 32. Okay, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now we often complicate simple things, don't we? So sure, there are times when things aren't totally clear and they cause us you know, to scratch our heads and, and we need to do some digging and research. But there are things that we need to take at face value and not complicate them. So you look ahead to verses 34 through 36 to give us a foreshadow of our text that we're going to talk about this morning. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What would a simple face value interpretation view of verse 34 be? Jesus doesn't want us to occupy ourselves with things that upset us or do things unhealthy for ourselves in order to escape from those things like getting drunk. He doesn't want us to cope with our temporary problems in unhealthy ways, but in healthy ways like praying to Him for strength to deal with our problems rather than praying our problems away. Because there is deliverance in light of eternity and in His return. Simple. Just face value without reading much into the passage about, oh, and this is the end of the world. I think it's a big leap. 
The important takeaway from that passage is how to live life in the midst of our trials before Jesus' return. And we need to take a look at the passage this morning, verses 8-19, through in light of Jesus' promise to return. And we need to take a look at this passage in light of the past, what happened since Luke 21. So what happened in the past? Well, the temple was destroyed. And when I say past, I'm not meaning like scripturally, even though that's included, but just in our historical past. What happened in our history that we know? 70 A.D. the temple is destroyed, which Jesus prophesied in verse 6. And this passage refers to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem because it happened. It happened. But does it pertain to the future end of the age also? Or are some people reading too much into this passage? And so this is a question to ask because it gets really confusing if we think that the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. is of the same prophecy as of the end of the age because it's 2,000 years later and it's still not. And so then you get people start to think like, ah, it's those crazy Christians again. They've been saying the same thing for 2,000 years. But the Bible didn't say that. We said that. And so we're making it look like it's losing credibility. And so you look at verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So is that for back then, prior to 70 AD, prior to the temple destruction? Does that pertain to some event in our future? Is it both? How does it relate to other prophetic passages like in Daniel 7? Or does it at all? And so in order to get to these answers, we need to study the Bible. So when the disciples pose this question in verse 7, chapter 21, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? You notice that sign is singular. You notice that? They ask for one sign. It's kind of like uh, driving directions, right? You ask someone for driving directions, so you ask for a landmark to help you get a bearing on getting to know the right direction. So when people ask me, how do you get to your church? I would give them a landmark, like the lake. If you pass the lake, you've gone too far. right? Or I'd say like the tennis courts. The tennis courts, if you pass the tennis courts, it's the first light. If you keep going and you pass the barbecue place, you've gone too far. So I'm giving them landmarks. right? And, and so a singular, powerful landmark, like the lake. This is what they're asking for because they want a clear point of reference. And so this way... Just like for us, we have a better peace of mind when we're, when we're traveling because we're, we're knowing what to look for. And this is what the disciples asked for. They asked for a, a major landmark. What is the sign? Verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. But I promised that we were going to look at the preceding verses, so let's go back. Because you notice that Jesus didn't give them the sign right away. He gives it to them in verse 20. But we're in verses 8 through 19, so let's go back there. Verses 8 through 11 first. Because first he gives them a warning before he gives them the sign. And so here's the warning. And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. 
Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Don't listen to those who will lead you astray. Don't get scared when you hear of wars and tumults because those are signs of things to come even though the end is not yet. So you think about wars and earthquakes and famine and pestilences. And you know what? When those things happen, they cause people to start wondering, don't they? And you start thinking, oh, is, is it now? Is it now? Is this all this, is it now? How many of these things have happened since Jesus told us about these things? In 2,000 years? A lot! All at one time even! And so people have been writing and thinking and acting out their prophecies of the end of the world by putting up billboards and saying be ready and all this and sell your stuff and do all this. Rather than taking heed of Jesus' warning to not be led astray. And yet we are. We're being led astray. We're letting those billboards and those different things lead us astray. And that's His first warning. Because how many publications and writings and movies, seminars, conferences are there about the end of the world? People are fascinated with this stuff, and Christians are no different. We take any war or any natural disaster, and we point to it as, oh, the coming of the end. But there have always been wars. There have always been natural disasters, right? And I'm not saying that the end's not coming. I'm just saying that the end is closer now than it was back then. But I still don't know when. It could be another 2,000 years. I don't know. But it's closer now. I, I know that. But it's always been happening. And Jesus gave a warning about deception. See that you are not led astray. You know, don't get freaked out about that stuff. It's been happening for 2,000 years since He said this. Study your Bibles and don't let anyone deceive you. Sure, the end is closer than it was 2,000 years ago, but let's not get carried away with this stuff. Mark described it as birth pains in Mark chapter 13, verse 8 because... Birth pains don't mean that the baby's arrival is imminent for any of you who have had children. We know this to be true. Not, not that I have had children. My wife had children, and that would be really weird. But you know the baby is coming. Right? You know it's coming. You just don't know when. But you know it's coming. And so as a father of three, I've gone through these things, these processes of false alarms, and we've gone to the hospital, and they've been, oh no, not yet, and we had to go back. and We've done all that stuff. And a variety of birth pains, not personally, thank God. And you fathers that have experienced the same thing, we are to be ready. Right? We're to be ready. But we're not to panic. Because what good is it if we panic? If we faint? And we have to be taken to the ER instead of taking care of mom who's going to be delivering. The, we, we are to be ready for the thing, whether it is false or whether it is game time. Right? We, we are to be ready. Either way. And so it's the same thing here. We're to be ready. Yeah, there are wars. There are famines. There are pestilences. But that might be a false alarm. It, it might be some other time. Verse 12, but before all this, did you catch what Jesus just said here? But before all this. Now what is this? What is the this that Jesus is talking about? Was that even grammatically correct? What is the this? This is everything that Jesus has said so far. 
verses 8 through 10 is this. But before verses 8 through 10, verse 12 continued. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Verses 8 through 10 actually come after verses 12 through 19 in terms of what happens, in terms of chronology. Verses 8 through 10 happen after verses 12 through 19. So, what will the disciples face? A merciless persecution from the Jews. Right? Delivering you up to the synagogues, as verse 12 said. And from the Gentiles. Prisons. The Jews would go after the early Christians for blasphemy. And the Gentiles would go after the early Christians because they believe that Jesus is the only Lord and that is unacceptable to the Romans who believe that there are many gods and most importantly, our emperor. Emperor worship. And this is why they try to corner Jesus in Luke chapter 20, verse 22, right? They sent spies and they asked him if it was lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not. Because if Jesus said yes, the Jews would turn against him. If he said no, the Romans would turn against him. So Jesus warned them about this same persecution that he just faced. He just faced that himself. These guys are trying to get him and he's going to get it from both sides, whichever way he answered. And we know from history that this is true. This is fact. We know this by even following the Gospel and the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, what happened? Acts chapter 4, verses 1-3, through Luke wrote, And as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. Filled with jealousy, they, the Jews, arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Verse 28 of chapter 5. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Verse 33, chapter 5. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. Verse 40 of chapter 5 in Acts. They had called in the apostles. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 6 through 8 is the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. You jump to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It happened. It happened in world history, it happened in our biblical text, is showing us what happened. But Jesus spoke about it in Luke 21 and it was fulfilled in the Acts of His Apostles. In Acts, we find Paul brought before kings and governors just as Jesus prophesied in Luke chapter 21, verse 12. Felix the governor, not the cat. Governor. In Acts chapter 23 and 24, right? Governor Festus in Acts chapter 24 through 26. King Agrippa in Acts chapter 25 through 26. Why the persecution? What does persecution allow? Verse 13, Luke chapter 21. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. 
It gives us, the followers of Jesus, an opportunity to share about who Jesus is and what He did for us. That's why the persecution. Verse 14 and 15. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate before how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus warned His disciples that they would have to endure persecution in their future. And it happened to Paul in the book of Acts when he bore witness to Felix and his wife Drusilla in Acts chapter 24-25. It reads, And as he, Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. King Agrippa said to Paul in Acts chapter 26, verse 28, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? So all prophecies of Jesus in Luke chapter 21, verse 12, being fulfilled in the book of Acts. Back to our text this morning, Luke chapter 21, verses 16 and 17. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for My name's sake. Didn't they face persecution more than just from the outside it, it came from within right? the hatred they, they came from every direction and, and some died for their faith in fact all but one of the apostles died a martyr's death the only one that didn't was john who wrote the book of revelation he was a prisoner on the island of patmos and he wasn't killed but that didn't mean that they didn't try tradition holds that they stuck him in boiling oil before banishing him to patmos We can look at other things too. We can look at world history. Because you look at the Emperor Nero, Caesar Nero, during his reign, 54 AD to 68 AD. What happened? Nero cruelly persecuted Christians. It was really bad. He set Rome on fire because he wanted to build something else. And then he blamed the Christians for it. And he was like, yeah, get those guys, get those guys. This guy was so sick. He would get Christians, he would impale them and put them in his garden and light them on fire. And he would say, look, light of the world. This is a sick guy. And so they faced this persecution, the early Christians did. Verses 18 and 19. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. I just told you about Caesar Nero. For some of you, aren't you thinking, what? Not a hair of your head will perish? That happened to early Christians? What are you talking about? The Bible must be false. Look at what happened. How could Jesus say this, especially in the light of the history that we now know? Is this some false hope thing that Jesus was telling His disciples just to like smooth it down a little, put a little sugar on there or something? No, this is Romans 8. This is what Paul wrote, verses 35-39 through 39 in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Jesus was talking about in verses 18-19. through 
It wasn't that their physical life would be saved. Physical death was going to happen, but that was going to usher us into an everlasting glory with God. They would receive a brand new beginning. What was taken physically will be restored spiritually. Now, let me just go into a couple verses to preview our next time together. Verses 20-21. through But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Thoughts going through my head about this. So if this is about the end of the world, how some people are interpreting this, why are people told to flee? If this is the end of the world, because would it even matter where you would run if it's the end of the world? It wouldn't matter. Right? So I don't think this is about the end of the world. Jesus told the disciples to withstand the persecution for the sake of the gospel in the earlier verses. And verses 20 through 21 are instructions to flee God's judgment and wrath that he will send to their established religion. He's bringing the religious structure down along with the physical structure of the temple. He's going to surround Jerusalem because he's bringing that down. And this took place. Right? This took place when Titus attacked Jerusalem. He sacked the city. He destroyed the city, including the temple. And so he's saying, when that day comes, when that day comes when Jerusalem's run and they're coming for the temple and they're going to destroy the city, run. Run. Because God's judgment is coming down on His religious people and that religious establishment. The destruction of the temple was a new beginning. It wasn't the end of the world. It was a new beginning. The destruction of the temple was just an unfathomable thing to the Jews. They could not believe this. This to them is the end of the world. But this was the plan of eternity between God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This was the plan. And yet we're so good at making God's things small. Institutionalizing our faith into a religion, into a location, into a church, and putting God in here. Thinking that you only meet God in here. We're Christians. We're doing the same thing, some of us, that the Jews did back then and why Jesus brought down the temple. And we're doing the same thing now. Oh, instead of sharing the Gospel out there, oh, come to church. What? The Gospel's within you. You share it. Why are you bringing them to church? I might scare them away. You do it. Why do you think bringing them to church is the way that they're going to get saved? God's not here. I mean, He's here now because you're here. But if you're not here, He's not here. God destroyed the temple because they were good at making God small. And we are doing the same thing at times. Making God small. Come to church. Come to church if you've already done the work and shared the Gospel. Right? Yeah, come to church. We have a good time. It's all good. But have we made God small and put Him into our church box? See you next week, God. We'll go come back and we'll bring more people here to meet you. But that was the temple. People going up there offering sacrifices and going to meet God. And God was like, no, the temple's gone. You guys go out. 
You guys, we're not going to be some big salt lick and everyone comes over and takes a lick. Salt of the world goes out. Spread it out. Spread that out, right? And so that's what it is. John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. People no longer had to go to Jerusalem to go to the temple to meet God. God came to us. Jesus came to us. And now we take the message to those who don't know Him so that they too become the church. The church is not a building of stone. The church is you and me as living stones. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 5, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, talking about Jesus, you, this is now us, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's not about an external structure that you guys are bringing people into. Please don't have the goal of bringing people to church. Have the goal of bringing the Gospel out to them. And if the outflow of that is them coming to church so that they can worship corporately and can learn more deeply and can fellowship here, great! But you go do it. You as a living stone. If you don't know how, that's part of the responsibility of our church to equip you. If you don't know how to share the Gospel, talk to me. We'll go through it. We'll do these things. And then you go out. It's not about external structures. It's about each one of us being filled with the Holy Spirit. God is taking away what we have minimized into a religion. Just a religion. And expanding it into each one of us into a relationship with a holy God, with Almighty God who has cleansed us of our sins and greets us without a hair on our head missing. Not physically, because some of us it's too late. I have good genes though. Thanks, mom and dad. But spiritually, right? And, and to share with those around the world the love of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And we ask God that you would fill your people with your Holy Spirit to go about doing your work. Forgive us, Lord, for ever having a club mentality or a building mentality where we're thinking it's on these external structures around us. May we take ownership and responsibility that you've implanted the gospel in each one of us and may we be doing good work. In Jesus' name, amen.